So we're going to be actually, this summer, we're going to go into a, a sermon series through First and Second Thessalonians. Um, and so today we're going to look at the book of Acts. And what we, we're just going to read um, some of those passages that are around the birth of the Thessalonian church. And we're going to kind of see what we can glean there um, so that we understand a little bit of the background and the historical understanding. So just so you know, a couple years ago, I guess it was about two years ago this coming July, um, we were in Thessaloniki. Actually, um, the guys up here who are on the worship team, we had the privilege of being invited to the Lesbos Moria refugee camp, as many of you guys know. And after we spent about a week in the refugee camp, we went up to Thessaloniki, um, which is what it's called now. And in Thessaloniki, we did some more refugee ministry. Uh, Thessaloniki is kind of a unique place because that's, if you cross by land, that's where from the Middle East, it's called the refugee highway. Let's say you're coming out of Afghanistan through Turkey and you want to get into Europe. Thessaloniki is where you cross. That's the only way to go, okay? Unless you want to like go through Siberia or something. Um, and so that's where people come, as opposed to the way by water where they get in dinghies and they wind up on the island of Lesbos. And so we were in Thessaloniki. So there's lots of refugees, lots of human trafficking, an almost absent Christian witness, and also a lot of electric scooters that you can just pick up and ride around. That's for another time, guys, in case you want to see some videos of us doing some sweet tricks on electric scooters. But um, we're going to work through First and Second Thessalonians during the summer. And I, I, want, I don't want to burst your bubble, but it's actually not pronounced Thessalonica. It's Thessalonica. And so I know that just kind of ruined your entire framework of, of the New Testament, but that's how they pronounce it. Um, when you read the Bible, as those, a lot of you guys know, not everybody who's here has been trained to use the Discovery Bible Study. It's those big blue rack cards, the trifolds, um, the bookmarks, they're all in the foyer. Um, but for those of you who are familiar with the Discovery Bible Study, you're used to these questions. If you're not used to the Discovery Bible Study, it's really simple. And as we read through the Bible, what we do is we just ask a couple key questions that are big picture questions. We ask, like, what does this teach about God? What does this teach about people? What do I do in response? If it's true, what should I do? If it's true, who should I tell? And so we always encourage people that you just begin with those big four questions. Those are big four questions. They're by no means simple. Um, you know, even John Calvin, the theologian, referred to the knowledge of God, the knowledge of self, and then they talked about the activity of faith. And so these are things that are embedded in just healthy Bible reading. Now, those are basic questions, but you can ask more questions, right? It's not like those are the only questions that you can ask. For example, you can, as we're studying a whole book like 1 Thessalonians, as you're reading it a section at a time, you can ask, how does this tie into the book that I'm reading? How does this further the argument of the book? You can say, how does this look back to the Old Testament? Or if you're in the Old Testament, you can say, how does this look forward to Jesus? These are all standard questions that you can add to your own discovery process as you interpret the Bible, as you, as you uh, exercise what are fancy terms called um, hermeneutics. So we're going to look at the book of Acts today because we want to ask these core questions. Um, specifically, what does the Bible teach us about the foundation of the Thessalonian church. 
That's what we want to ask. You know, it's easy to just jump straight to a commentary. Um, and and, that's, and com, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with commentaries, study Bibles. They're valuable tools. I'm not diminishing them. I, you know, I use them. But by asking the right questions, you can actually learn a lot. Because guess what? Where do you think the people who wrote those books went before they wrote their commentary? The Bible, right? And so they went to the Bible and they read. And so as we look at the book of Acts today, I think for some of you, you're going to be shocked by just how much you can learn about the background of Thessalonica um, before we go and study it. And so we're going to ask questions today, specifically, what does this teach us about Thessalonica, the city? We're going to ask, what does this teach us about Paul's ministry, the way he did ministry? And then the third thing is, um, what do we need to keep in mind as we read First and Second Thessalonians over the course of the summer? And so I'm going to be reading in the book of Acts. Feel free to follow along with me. And we're going to read, and I'm going to comment, and then we're going to slow down once we um, get to chapter 17. All right, hold on one second. I got too many, too many things going on here. I can't use this stand. Okay, beginning in chapter 16. So Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So he's half Jewish, half Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now, it's important to note that Paul is always inviting people in. He's inviting people in, inviting people up all the time. And on a very simple level, if you want to know how to make a disciple, be a disciple who invites people into your life and up to participate with you. This is one of the reasons why one of my favorite things in the world to do is travel the world with people from Revolve. Because you go somewhere for a week, you never get more intense discipleship time with someone than when you travel with them right? And so Paul's always inviting people in, always inviting people up in this process of discipleship. And so he wants Timothy to accompany him, and he takes him, and he circumcises him. You can talk to your parents about that. Because of the Jews who were in those places, he knows it's going to offend the Jews if he's not circumcised. For they all knew his father was a Greek, and Greeks didn't get circumcised back then. And so as they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles. He's talking about chapter 15. So in this process, the churches were strengthened in faith. They increased in numbers daily. The church is still growing. And here's where we see the beginning um, of, of our story. And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. (laughs) And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately man, that's obedience, right? Costly obedience. Paul saw the vision and immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want you to notice here, in terms of what does it teach about God and what does it teach about people, we see two really obvious things, that God speaks through natural and through supernatural means. 
Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit forbid them um, to go into this one region. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. We don't know what that looks like. It could have been anything from getting sick to having their ride not show up, okay? But we know that God uses both natural means, blocking away, and supernatural means. Here we see Paul having a vision, okay? Now, the vision is not the norm, though. It's not like it's never happened in the history of the church. But God uses natural and supernatural means to communicate to us, primarily communicates in the word through his spirit. And what is the requirement of man based upon this passage? To obey. God speaks, we obey. That is the essence of being a disciple, hearing his voice, obeying his voice, and sharing his words with other people, right? And so that's exactly what they do. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, is it Italian? <laughs> and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So this whole region is Macedonia, this northern Greece, northern Macedonia region. It's also a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath we went outside the gate to the riverside. This is an important piece where we suppose there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. You see, you also need to notice that Paul always seeks out spiritual places. Paul doesn't, he's not aimless. He doesn't just kind of walk around and hope he meets somebody who might want to talk about Jesus. Paul always goes to spiritual places first. He doesn't stop there, but he always goes to the spiritual places first to look for spiritual people because Paul knows that spiritual people will be more open to talk about what? spiritual things. This isn't rocket science. And so that's what he does. One, verse 14, who he heard, who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So God, um, Paul goes to spiritual people to look for spiritually open people. That's called a person of peace, Luke 10. Okay. Um, but you also need to notice this, that God has already prepared people. This is one of the things that we talk about in our disciple making course called the hub. John 6, to 45 says, nobody comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. And anyone who has heard and learned from me um, comes to me, comes to the father. Okay. And so realize that God has already prepared people's hearts. And all Paul is doing is looking for where God has already tilled the soil and he can take the ball and run with it. And that's exactly what happens. And so one of the things that I want you to think about practically, and I'm going to remind you at the end of this service, is to be thinking about where do spiritually people hang out in our town? Where do spiritual people hang out? See, Paul would go to the synagogues. He'd go to the place of prayer. Where would spiritual people hang out? Well, yes, spiritual people might come into a church, but there's also non-Christian background spiritual people. Where do they hang out? And how do we go to them because they're going to be much more willing and ready to have a conversation about spiritual things? 
In the following verses, um, as they're going, verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Pay attention, those of you who think things like tarot cards and uh, palm reading and psychics is just good fun. Astrology, let's see what the source of it is. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days until Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, in other words, the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Notice that just because something seems pretty cool, like a spirit of divination and fortune telling, doesn't mean they have a trick. It means they have a demon. Okay? And so don't mess around. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain, in other words, making money, was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Because they're talking about following another king named Jesus. And the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them, gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What does this teach us? Obedience can be costly. Obedience can be costly. Don't take smooth sailing as a sign that you're always doing the will of God. As Steve, one of our elders, likes to remind us, Paul said, there's an open door of ministry for, here, for me here, and it has many adversaries. Often doing the right thing relates in opposition, not in grease tracks. Okay? And so make a note of that. So what happens? Well, about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and they're singing hymns to God and the prisoners are listening to them. And suddenly there's an earthquake so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken and the doors fling open and the jailer wakes up because he's sleeping on the job and he sees the doors open and he thinks to himself, I'm done. I'm toast. They're going to kill me. I better kill myself first. And he's about to kill himself on his sword when Paul cries out and tells him not to. He runs to them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They tell him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house and took them in the same hour of the night. He washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house, set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his whole household that he had believed in God. Pretty remarkable. God prepares people. And although you should look for them in places that make sense, like Lydia at the place of prayer, you're called to be on mission everywhere you go, which is why this jailer winds up coming to faith, because that was not part of their plan to go to the spiritual place of prison and look for people who were open. And so God is always on the move. Verse, chapter 17. Now we're getting to Thessalon Thess Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, in other words, three weeks, 
he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, which is, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the word that means the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the one who was sent to rescue, to proving that it was necessary for the anointed one, the Christ, the promised son of David, to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not just a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, who apparently is one of the disciples there, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And this is what they shouted. And what a prayer this should be for our own community. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all, they try to hide behind Caesar. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, like they cared about Caesar, saying that there is some other king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, what happens here, and I'm going to talk about this whole thing because it's like another two chapters, is they flee and they go to the next town called Berea. And what happens in Berea is those Jews are a lot more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. And every time Paul says something, they go back to the scriptures and they read through it to figure it out. But then the Jews from Thessalonica walk 40 miles to Berea to make sure that Paul's up, not up to any no good over there. And they convince, and he gets, he gets stoned, and then he winds up having to run out. Or they're trying to stir up the crowds to kill him, I mean. And he winds up getting run out. And Paul goes on to Athens while, Tim, while Titus and Silas, they, or Timothy and Silas, rather, they stay in Berea for a period of time. And then Paul sends Timothy um, to go back to Thessalonica to check on the people. And then Timothy meets up with Paul in Corinth for a little debrief. And it's while in Corinth, because Paul couldn't go back to Thessalonica, but he sent Timothy. It's while in Corinth that, Ty that Timothy and Silas arrive and meet with Paul. And then Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians, which is the letter we're going to read, 1 Thessalonians. Okay? So that's kind of the backdrop of this whole framework. Now, I'm not, all I'm doing is reading the book of Acts for you, so you can see the backdrop for yourself. So as we look at Acts 17, 1 to 9, those couple of verses, what does this teach us about Paul's custom of ministry? A couple things we can make note of. One, we see that part of Paul's strategy was to begin in the major cities and then believed the gospel was going to be carried from the major cities out to the rural areas. We know this because he passes through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he goes to Thessalonica, which was the city hub, okay? So in other words, in our modern way of thinking, expatriates, expats, people living abroad, can reach cities, but it often takes locals to reach the rural areas, okay? 
People within cities are more used to seeing people who are from all over the world. But if all of a sudden I parachute you in the middle of the desert in Saudi Arabia, where they've never seen a white guy, let alone a Christian, you might not fare so well. Okay? But if you're in the capital city, there's lots of expats who are living there. So expats often like these people, right? Paul is an expat. He's not from that area. Timothy's an expat. He's not from that area. Silas, these guys aren't from that area. They often can reach a city, but it takes the locals to run with it to reach the rural area or the areas outside. Second thing we can make a note of with Paul's missionary strategy is that Paul went to places with spiritual people first. He didn't stop there, but that was his strategy. He always began by going to places with spiritual people. He went to the synagogue three weeks in a row because he knew as a visitor and a Jew, he could share. Third thing we see, it says that Paul dialogued. He reasoned with them. If you look up that word in the original language, it can be translated as dialogued. He dialogued with the Jews using questions and discussing in more of a discussion-type piece. In other words, Paul wasn't preaching the way that I am right now, which is very common in our culture. For Paul, they were having a dialogue from the Scriptures, from the Word. This is one reason, by the way, why we love the Discovery Bible study, though it is, we're not saying it's the only way that God works. The fourth thing we realize, it says that Paul proclaimed Christ. Okay, why is that important? Paul didn't proclaim Christianity. Paul didn't proclaim a new religion to change into. Paul proclaimed a person. Paul proclaimed a king, not a religious system. Okay, that's a big difference. In the hub, we talk about showing people that you love God, not that you love Christianity. There's a big difference between those two things, isn't there? Fifth. Paul knew that near-culture people, God-fearing Gentiles in this case, could reach far-culture people better than himself. What does that mean? It says in chapter 17, it says that there were some Jews who were persuaded and also a great many of devout Greeks. Well, what, is it, what does that mean, devout Greeks? Devout Greeks were Greeks who had become convinced of the truth of the Jewish God and who had gone through the whole process, either up to circumcision or even with circumcision, but they still couldn't go into the, you know, the, the holy place of the temple. They were always Gentiles, so they were always kind of like half class. But this is the thing. If I grew up as a Greek and then became convinced of the Jewish God, and then Paul tells me about Jesus, and now I'm all the way for Christ, who's going to be more likely to reach my Greek mama back in the village? Me or a Jew? Me. Okay? So one of the discipleship pieces that we talk about all the time is that you often need to find a near-culture person to reach a far-culture person. I'll give you an example of this. A missionary like myself, if I go to the Middle East, statistically, and these things might shift, obviously, depending on where you are, but just very generally, they say that it's a one in a thousand chance of me sharing the gospel with a Muslim and having them respond, all right, as blue-eyed Billy showing up, okay? Now, if you are a Christian background believer of Middle Eastern descent, in other words, if you are from the Orthodox Church in Egypt, right, and you grew up and you came to faith, if you share the gospel in Arabic, 
with a Muslim, there is a one in a hundred chance of them coming to faith. But if you are a Muslim background believer who has come to faith in Christ and now shares, that percentage jumps to a one out of five. Okay? So as a missionary, it is much more advantageous to find the near culture person who will find the far culture person because that is the most efficient use of my time to train an existing Christian background believer so they can reach the people who are not like us because they will always be more effective than I will. This is why Paul brings Timothy with him because Paul's a Jew and Timothy can reach Greeks better than Paul can reach Greeks. All right, Paul's a brilliant missionary. He's a brilliant missionary. Six, Paul knew when to move on. In this case, it was because they were threatening his life, but he didn't just drop people he coached from afar. And seven, Paul was always traveling with people and developing them. Okay? I'm flying. Okay, guys? What does this teach us about Thessalonica, the city? Well, it was a city. Actually, it was the second largest city in all of Greece after Athens. They estimate the population was around 200,000 people. But like I said earlier, as we talked about the refugees, it was also strategic because it was the land path between Rome and Jerusalem. This is how you went through. It was also right on the water, which meant that you could have seafarers and merchants going either by land or by sea. And it didn't exactly have the best reputation in the world. As we see right here in chapter 17, they were less noble than the Bereans. Okay? They were sailors, promoters of fertility, protector of seafarers. They worshiped the god Kabiri. And so what do we keep in mind with all of these things as we read First and Second Thessalonians? One, Paul didn't spend a lot of time there. By all accounts, Paul was probably there less than a month, okay? That means that these people have the basics, but Paul essentially planted this church in less than a month's time. Pretty impressive, Paul. We tend to overcomplicate things. If they traveled 40 miles to Berea to chase Paul down, you can bet there's local persecution, okay? If you're mad enough to go walk to Atlantic City to yell at someone, you can be sure you're getting in fights in your own backyard. Three, the new, they are new believers in a, in a city with a reputation. There's never been a more wretched hive of scum and villainy since Mose Eisley. Okay? It's a Star Wars reference, guys. The deck people get it. Four, Paul sent Timothy and Silas back to check in on the Thessalonians, and he didn't go himself. And so it leads all of these things to the scenario, a hasty departure, a young church, Paul not being able to return in peace, a bunch of sailors, no offense, fishermen, big city living, persecution and opposition from Jew and Gentile. And so as we read through First and, first and Second Thessalonians, these are the various hiccups that are on Paul's mind. He desires to reconnect with them relationally because they're kind of miffed that he sent Timothy instead of coming himself. Persecution is still continuing. They had confusion about Jesus' return. Some people had died, and they were afraid that if they were dead and Jesus came back, it wouldn't count. Some were hung up on Paul, and so at the end of the book, we realize they weren't listening to their local leaders because they were just waiting to hear what Paul had to say. Everybody loves a big personality. And of course, 
people were so young in the faith, many still struggled with issues of holiness and purity. And so it's with these things that Paul wants to address all of these different areas. He wants them to see that their faith in the accomplished work of Christ is what saves them. He wants to encourage them to holy, loving, dutiful lives, even in the midst of difficulty. And he wants them to look forward to the second coming of Jesus with anticipation, eagerness, and joy. And so we realize that the Thessalonian letters are really relevant to us as well. In many respects, we're plagued with the same struggles as these brothers and sisters almost 2,000 years later. Thessaloniki is still a gateway city, but no longer for Romans, now for refugees. Sin is still sin. It's still insidious and destructive. It still seeks to decimate new believers and derail mature. Persecution continues. The tactics have shifted, but it always comes down to worshiping King Jesus versus another king. And we can still learn a great deal from the Apostle Paul, from his missionary methods, from his servant's heart, from his relational approach, from his love for the Lord, and of course, from his teachings. And so this week, I want you to read through the book of 1 Thessalonians a few times if you have the time to do so. And as you're reading through 1 Thessalonians, I want you to ask a couple key questions. Try to read it through in one sitting at least one time. I want you to think about, ask yourself, what are the main ideas of this letter? What is the big picture that this teaches about God? What is the big picture that this teaches about me? What am I commanded or encouraged to do? And do I have a friend who I think would benefit from reading this letter as well? And I can invite them to do it with me. And so let's summarize. Jesus is building his church as we see in the book of Acts, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You know, we worry so much about the details, and they do matter, but ultimately this comes down to the word, to the spirit, and people. And so, practical steps for this week. Paul looked for spiritual people. How can you look for spiritual people? To dialogue with them. Paul would dialogue with people from the scriptures to show that Jesus was king. How can we do the same? Maybe consider at the next few minutes during your time of prayer and table talk, maybe write down the names of five people that you interact with on a regular basis and pray for opportunities to dialogue with them about Jesus as king. Maybe five spiritual people who are five friends who are spiritual people, even if they're not on the same page as you. So I'm going to give you guys a couple minutes for your table talk. You can use the questions on your sheet, or you can just talk generally about how you live this out and apply it. And then we will close in a few minutes.